Today's text is 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 31. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, you are, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. May the hearers of God's word be blessed. Is that better? Oh, there we go. Somebody muted me last week, from last week. So uh, it's good to be back. Uh, Thank you to Andrew for filling in last week. Um, I was um, in Fresno uh, with uh, an Acts 29 church in Fresno. They had asked us to come up and and, uh, share, and so I was able to to, uh, preach to them out of Luke chapter 18, Um, and so that was a joy. So uh, it's good to be back this morning as we are going to wrap up our four weeks uh, looking at marriage, um, if you guys recall that the, the, the series was entitled Happily Ever After, and we came out, um, have come out uh, pretty hard, I would, I would say, um, against some of the, um, the worldly influences of marriage and the ideals of marriage and um, what we allow to uh, define what ma- the purpose of marriage uh, the goal of marriage, intimacy within marriage, and then today we're going to look at uh, what is the pursuit of marriage. Um, and I want to, before I forget, uh, I want to ask everybody, uh, encourage you guys sometime this next week or in the next couple of weeks to go to YouTube, um, and um, there's a, a, a teaching on there by Francis Chan entitled Marriage in Light of Eternity, uh, and I encourage you guys to write that down and watch that. Um, that way you know that the things that I'm sharing with you today are not just uh, one person who doesn't know what's going on in the world, um, but this is a common challenge that the church needs to hear uh, this morning. And, and Francis Chan is um, obviously very eloquent and, and passionate uh, in, in portraying that. So I encourage you guys uh, to watch that um, this week. Um, but this morning what we're going to be looking at is the pursuit of marriage. Is it to be the American dream or is it to be kingdom come? And by that, of course, I'm thinking of Jesus' word, seek first uh, God's kingdom, and then everything else will be added unto you. So what is the pursuit of marriage to be about? Because I want, I want to let us know, I hope that we know this, although when we look at our own marriages and when we compare the way that our marriages respond to uh, stress and conflict, um, uh, oftentimes, sadly, our marriages resemble uh, the, the marriages of the world. Um, not in the problems that we have, because we know that those are going to be the same, but in the way that we love one another through those problems, and in, then in the sources that we run to and we flee to for help in the midst of those problems. Sadly, the church looks much like the world. And so I want to let us know this morning that the American dream and, and God's kingdom come are not the same thing. You realize that? 
See, typically what we think is we think that we're supposed to get married and have kids and have this perfect American dream of a life, and then God will bless it because we think that that's exactly what God wants. But the two are not the same, and and if I could be pretty blunt, the two are not friends. They don't go together. You cannot simultaneously attain both. You see, in fact, God's kingdom, pursuing God's kingdom... Uh, requires that we deny the things of the world. Jesus was very, very clear um, in, in his time here on earth with his disciples, as recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, of course, we see it all throughout the New Testament. But Jesus was very clear that living for God's kingdom was a denial and a rejection of the world. It was to say that I am living according to faith, and not by sight. I am living according to the comforts that God promises at the return of Christ and denying the current, some of the, the, the current comforts that I can receive by spending my money on myself, by spending my time on myself. And so the lie that has crept into the church is this, is that marriage is the frame that encompasses the picture of the American dream. Now, granted, I'll admit that this is obviously very much, uh, to, to the naked eye, I would say, it's very much changing as we look at how marriage is under attack. But I would actually uh, propose to you that, the re- that because marriage is so under attack these days, that this lie is being believed even more. Because what's happening is people who think that marriage should be for as short as anybody wants or between any, any parties, regardless of who they are or how many of them there are, they want to be married. Marriage is still viewed as a part of the substance of life. And so they're saying that I want to be acknowledged for my love and where I'm at and what I think love should be and what I think marriage should be. And that is being shoved down the world's throat. And sadly, there are many, many churches. In fact, in Fresno, I was able to talk with some people um, who, uh, it was was pretty sad. They had been at the same church for um, a little over 20 years. And one of the couples was telling me, um, you know, that that was the church that they got married in. And that was the church that their kids were baptized in. But they brought in a new pastor who was teaching things that were not of the Bible. In fact, they said that in a few months being there, he'd only opened the Bible once. And so they were recalling just with sadness. They, they loved that church. They loved the people. It had some great fondness to them. But because a new idea of marriage was being proclaimed to them, they, they knew that they, they couldn't stay and Praise God, I encourage them and, uh, for, for taking that stand. A lot of people wouldn't take that stand. They would weather the storm and just quietly disagree. But the truth is that a happily ever, ma- a happily ever after marriage is one that, God, that sets God's kingdom as its pursuit. Now, if, you'll, if you listen closely, you're going to see that this doesn't really change. And in fact, Paul's argument here as we dive into the, uh, the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is, is very much where he, he actually encourages married people to live like single people. And I want to try to explain that to you this morning the best that I can um, in, in, in um, substantiating the fact that marriage is to be about the pursuit of God's kingdom. But let me ask you this morning, what is it that your heart wants? What is it that your heart wants? What was the first thing that just popped into your mind as I just asked you that question? 
I saw a picture this week that got my mind thinking um, along this way, and it was a picture of a young lady, and above it, it said, when I want to be skinny, but I also want an extra large pizza. And then across the bottom of the picture, it said, the heart wants what it wants. You see, that's the world preaching our message. And I would add, not only does the heart want what it wants, but the heart gets what the heart wants. You see, it amazes me how quick we are in the world to align our finances and our, li- our entire lives around the things that our heart wants. But yet then at the time of conversion, when we, when we come to this point, we're like, you know what, we are, we're sinners in need of salvation and grace. And then we, we, we pledge our faith and our allegiance to God. We lose that radicalness. <laughs> we lose that, that willingness to realign our lives about the, around the things that the heart wants. And we know that some of that is simply because our flesh is still very real. The world is still very real. There's still sin, and our flesh still delights in sin. And so there's this battle. In fact, Paul, and I think it's in Romans chapter 7, says that when he sins, it's not really him sinning. It's his flesh doing it. But why is it that when the church or people of the church begin to call one another to radical Christ following, that there's all kinds of rebellion against it? You join a fantasy football league, you're going to do whatever they say you need to do to be a part of the fantasy football league. Right? It's this way for everything in our lives. But when it comes to the church, we lose this radical realignment of our life. Some of it is because, obviously, we don't realize how sinful we are um, until grace has been revealed to us at greater levels. We didn't realize how hard it was going to be to deny the flesh. There's truth in that. Sometimes we don't realize how much we actually do idolize our spouse or our children or our job or our identity or our hobbies or whatever it is. And that's hard. And that's legitimately hard. There's nothing about what we're talking about saying that that's not real. We're not trying to hide those feelings. That's very real. But nonetheless, the call is to radically realign your life around the gospel of Jesus for his mission. So what is it that your heart wants? Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says this is for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Colossians 1 chapter 20 says and through him of course referring to Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Is your heart's desire to fill the earth with God's glory and to reconcile what is broken? Is that that what describes your life? Is that what your life is arranged around? Or are you often like me where you just try to do as little good as you have to so that you can say that you're radically following God? Right? But here's the truth when it comes to marriage is that most spouses don't even want that in their own relationship, let alone in the world. You see, most spouses don't fight, and it's because we're told not to fight. We're told to go find somebody better. We deserve better. But most spouses don't even fight for God's glory in their own marriage and for what is uh, broken to be reconciled. We've lost that. 
How do you answer the question, how do I know what my heart truly wants? This might be new information. This might be a new idea. How do you know what your heart wants? Well, simply, you assess your life. If you were to write a story or if somebody was to look at your life and write a a story or a synopsis of your life and they looked at your money and your time and your energy and your daydreams and your effort and the motives and everything that you do, what would be the theme of your life? Would your life, would would it look like this idea of filling the earth with God's glory and reconciling what is broken? Would it look like the pursuit of the American dream? So let's look at verse 29. That's where I want to spend most of our time this morning in our text, um, explaining that, because I believe in this verse, Paul very clearly lays out what the hearts of a a husband and a wife are supposed to be um, called to. And he says this in verse 29, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Now, Let's pause right there because we've got to get an understanding of what Paul is talking about because oftentimes what happens is, and I remember this as a kid growing up in the church, like we're constantly told, Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back, the time is short, and you kind of panic. Like, I don't, well, I don't know, what am I supposed to do? Do I even need to do anything if he's coming back? Does it matter? Right? Like, especially during homework time, it's like, well, Jesus is coming back, pastor said it on Sunday, I'm not doing this. Right? And then there's this idea that since the writing of the New Testament, the writers of the, of, the, of the New Testament constantly are telling people that the time is at hand, the time is short, and now here we are 2,000 years later, and it still hasn't happened. So what does that mean? Does it mean it's not going to happen? Does it mean it's just like some idea that eventually will happen, but it hasn't happened in 2,000 years, so there's no way it's going to happen in the next 80 But the idea, that the overwhelming idea in the New Testament when it talks about the time is short is that we're always in the end times. We're always in the time is short. We don't know when Christ is coming back. And God does not let us off the hook and say, well, because you don't know, it'll be okay. In fact, Jesus talks about it himself and says that you should be working so that when the master comes back, he will find you being faithful. He will find you doing good. And I always remember as a kid, and usually in youth group, you know, the pastor's talking about this, and they, they kind of scare you a little bit, which I think is okay to a point. Um, but it's like, what do you want to be found doing when Jesus comes back? Like, what is it like, that you want to be found in the middle of doing when Jesus comes back? And most of us hope it's sitting here on a Sunday morning, because <laughs> then we'll be okay. Right? What, but what about Friday night? Or Tuesday morning, Wednesday afternoon. So the idea is that Christ is coming back, and we don't know when it will be, but it will be soon. First Peter says, or excuse me, Second Peter chapter three says this very thing. He's encouraging the, the church that he's writing to, and when he says, "Some of you um, think that the Lord is slow in coming back, as you count slowness, but don't forget that to, to, to God, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day." And so he's not slow to return. His promise is good. She said he wishes that none would be, that more people would come to know him. It's really the heart of Peter's message there. 
But this is a common New Testament theme. In First Corinthians, uh, in the beginning of this book, First Corinthians chapter one, Paul writes, "So that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ." Philippians chapter three verse twenty says, "But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty eight says, "Christ, having been offered once." To bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting His return. Are we eagerly awaiting the return of Christ? Does the story of our life, listen, if you're in here and you're married, does, 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 the, does, the, act, does the outworking and, and the affection and the purpose and the pursuit of your marriage... Does it eagerly await the return of Christ? And I'm not saying that because you're tired of the person you're married to. And I go, oh God, just come back now. It's the only way out. They told us two weeks ago we can't get divorced, so you've got to come back. Sadly, I sat underneath a pastor one time that told people that if they didn't like the person they were married to, they can't divorce them, but they can pray that God would kill them. <laughs> yes, that was really said. But the idea of eagerly waiting for Christ's return is not the idea of the focus being on how much you can't stand your spouse or how much you want your spouse gone. But it's the realization of what Christ has done. So now he goes on in verse 29. So he says, uh, The appointed time has grown very short. So from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now that would, at the surface, appear to be somewhat of a contradiction to the rest of Paul's writing as well as Jesus' own words in the Gospels. But Paul is not saying that you're free to, to, to uh, you're getting a free pass to divorce. When he's talking about being free, he's not talking about the being free from the bondage and the covenant, not the bondage, excuse me, I'm going to say the bond of marriage. <laughs> Whoops. From the bond and the covenant in marriage. He's not saying that. How do we know this? Well, simply, we look at the context of Paul's writing here in chapter 7. Verses 1 through 13, Paul clearly says, don't divorce. In fact, Paul even says that if you're married to somebody who is not a believer and they will stay with you, they will live with you, then you, ha- then you stay. You stay, you love them. You be the word of the gospel and the light of the gospel in their lives that they might be saved. In verse 27, we read it, uh, Nikhil read it for us this morning. He says, are you bound to a wife? Then do not seek to be free. Later on in verse 39, he says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So how do we make sense of this? What is he saying? Well, knowing that Paul's entire argument is based on the return of Christ, what he's talking about is he's comparing the life of singles and married. Look at verses 32 through 35 of chapter 7 with me. Paul says, um, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 
I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So this is what Paul's saying in verse 29. Is in light, see, living for the return of Christ frees us from being anxious about pleasing our spouse. Now, we know that living for the return of the Lord and being obedient to the gospel of Jesus calls us to love our spouses faithfully and fully and unconditionally. But at no time are we called to elevate our marriage or our spouse above Christ himself, his return, or his mission. And typically, that is what happens. You see, Paul is saying, in order to live faithfully as a married person for Christ's return, live as though you're single. Don't be anxious about pleasing your wife. Don't be anxious about pleasing your husband. Be anxious about the things of the Lord. Be anxious about God's kingdom being established on earth as it is in heaven. Seek first God's kingdom, and all these things will be added. You see, typically, very generically, you know why your marriage isn't happily ever after? It's because you've either made it about yourself or your spouse. That's why. That's why. You'll never be happy that way. Ever. Now, you might experience times of bliss uh, and happiness when your spouse is doing and conforming to your, you know, your exact uh, desires. But it's uh, impossible for them to continue that forever. And at some point, they're going to begin to not fulfill those desires the way you want them fulfilled, and you're going to become upset and frustrated. They were not meant to be your ultimate source of satisfaction. That's not the design. That's idolatry. You see, my job is not to make my wife happy. It's to wash her with the word and live a life that denies my fleshly desires so that she will be fruitful. You see, husbands, the Bible is very clear that part of our job is to wash our wives with the word. What does that mean? That simply means that in everyday life, conversations throughout the day. You're constantly washing her with the word as she struggles with whatever it is that her heart wanders towards, insecurity, uh, inadequacies, whatever those might be. It's to wash her with the word. Wash her and remind her of the truth of who she is in Christ. Not just that you love her and accept her the way that she is. That's good. But that's foundationally inadequate to to help wash her heart and to change her. She needs to know who she is in God. She needs to know how God cares for her, how God speaks about her, how God views her. You see, we have a role in the sanctification of our wives. The Bible is very clear. Wash our wives with the water of the word so that she will be um, presented to Christ holy, without blemish, sanctified. My job is not to make her happy. My job is to wash her with the word so that she would be fruitful. So that she would be encouraged to follow Christ, not discouraged. That I would make it easy for her to follow God. Easy to love Christ and His gospel. Easy to love His mission. 
And her job is not to simply just satisfy my desires and cook my meals. But it's to encourage and equip me to lead well so that our family lives as citizens of heaven and not just citizens of this country. See how that radically changes the pursuit of your marriage if you live this way? How many of your problems, how many of my problems, how many of our problems would go away if we would simply live our lives for Christ's kingdom instead of the American dream? And again, I know it's hard. You can't turn on the radio. You can't drive down the road and see a billboard. You can't go stand in the line at a checkout without being sold what you deserve. Right? It's everywhere. It is everywhere. The lie is just, or excuse me, the world is just constantly filling our hearts and our emotions and trying to take our affections for things that provide temporary joy. We know that. We know there's temporary happiness in the things of the world. We know that. But there is not eternal satisfaction and joy found in anything that the world has to offer. So again, how does Paul say to faithful live for Christ's return as a married person? To live as though you're single. And why is he saying that? What's he talking about when he's talking about the obligations? He's not trying to portray marriage in a, in a, in a bad light. Listen, this time of the church historically, there was extreme, extreme persecution that the church was facing. Think of some of the stories that we've show, shared with you over the last couple of years of, in foreign countries where Christians are being beheaded and their children are being taken from them and horrible things are being done to them. These are the things that were happening to the church at this time that Paul was writing them to encourage them. So what he's telling them is, men, if you get married, you're going to have a God-given responsibility to provide and protect for your wife and if you have kids. But a single man doesn't have that. Now, there's a much debate among theologians in the church today about this is where some people, maybe you've heard the gift of singleness and whether or not that was kind of um, an exception for the time or the situation or if that's just kind of a standard. Um, I don't think it matters this, for what we're talking about this morning because Paul is saying that if you're unmarried, husbands don't have to provide and protect for their wives and wives, you don't have to follow and help your husbands. And, and I think there's a part of us where we can all just breathe, breathe a sigh of relief and say, that would be easier. Like, it's hard enough to manage my own heart. It's hard enough to wash my own heart with the Word. And to be reminded of who I am in Christ is completely um, um, separate from the things that I'm able to accomplish and do for Him. But verse 29 again, Paul's not saying to divorce, but he's saying to live with Christ as your life, as an unmarried person does. But here's some of the problem, if we're honest, is that even before we got married, we weren't living this way. Right? We weren't living this way before we got married. So now, not only is it a radical change in my own life and heart that I'm not used to, but now I've got my spouse with me, and it's like two sinners now are are in the same house, and like, how do we manage this? There's a tremendous book for, on marriage called When Sinners Say I Do, uh, and then there's another one called What Did You Expect? And both of them kind of share some of the same themes. But it's just this reality of like, listen, you're two sinners living in the same roof. What did you expect? Yes, to become one. When living obediently, when not living obediently, you got two people fighting, living for themselves. 
wanting their dreams and their desires to come true. So, in summary, Paul is saying to men and women that are singled and married, be anxious about Christ's mission. The time is short. Consider your life this morning. Consider your marriage this morning. Again, what is it about? Look at your budget. Look at your, the rhythm of your life. Is it about God's kingdom? And of course, when we talk about God's kingdom, we're talking about God's glory being covered, God's glory covering the earth as the water covered the seas, and what is broken being restored. So practically, how does this equate to a happily ever after marriage? Simply, because Christ is the focus. A happy, happily ever marriage after marriage is only obtainable when Christ is the focus. Because if we're really talking about ever after, let's talk about eternity. Right? Let's live in light of eternity. You see, the reason that our marriages struggle so much is because of the petty things that we fight over. Like, even in, in researching on this sermon series, like, the world is full of stupid things, of advice and articles of the stupid things that men and women fight about. Right? Like, even the world recognizes, you know, these stupid, these nine things that are stupid, the couples, like, we get it. Right? We get it. We fight. And of course, the world is going to stop and say, should you really fight over whether, which way the toilet paper comes off the roll, whether it comes off the top or the bottom, or should you really fight over whether you squeeze the toothpaste out of the middle or the bottom, right? Like those, but let's, as the church, those who follow Christ, who doesn't attack behavior or address behavior, but he addresses the heart, the reality is, is we're just fighting over being the boss. We're fighting over wanting it my way. We're fighting over wanting our spouse to serve us and treat us the way that only God should be treated and worshipped. Because Christ is the focus, that means that I'm not the focus. That means my spouse isn't the focus. It means that our possessions or the lifestyle that we're trying to obtain is not the focus. See, can I submit to you this morning that if your life, if your marriage, if your relationship is about God's kingdom, you won't have time to fight and bicker and complain about the stupid little things that don't really matter? You won't. When your life is consumed with Christ's goodness to you and His, His, His saving work and making other people aware of that and, and, and helping other people come to see that the things that they run to, the things that they flee to in the midst of pain and persecution and trials, how empty and vain they are, you don't have time to fight about stupid things that couples fight about. You don't have time to say, you need to stop doing what you're doing because it irritates me and you need to start serving me better. You see... When you two become one, when a husband and wife become one, it's not two people living two separate lives under one house. That's not the one. The one isn't just the house. The one is the life. It's what are we about together? You see, you cannot be about this while your husband or your wife is about this. Together. 
You should be about God's mission, making disciples, spreading God's glory. And as much and as right as it is that, that marriage is, is hard work at times, it's harder work to be about God's kingdom. It's hard work to deny the desires of the flesh and the things that our eyes see now before us. It's hard work. But it's worth it. Because in the hard work of pursuing God's kingdom is where we find the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's where we find the joy that surpasses the happiness that the world offers. It's where we find the security and the acceptance that our hearts deeply long for. So may our marriages be about filling the earth with God's glory and reconciling what is broken. May we put away petty differences and seek the good of our spouses. Some of you guys, like some of us in our marriages, we're just not for our spouse. We're just, it's just that simple. We're not for them. And some of us don't even let our spouses be for us. We're too busy pursuing the lies and the lusts of the flesh. We need to stop pursuing, pursuing the lifestyle that we think would make us happy and seek to bless others with the goodness of God in Christ. You see, life has meaning when you live it for Christ. Outside of Christ's kingdom, you'll constantly be searching for meaning. And when you find it, you'll give everything you have to it to find out it doesn't satisfy. So then you're going to have to find out a way to give more. Or you're going to change courses to find a new kingdom to live for. But may we be a people that fill the earth with God's glory and work to reconcile what is broken. If you stand with me, we'll pray. God, this morning I thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ. I thank you, God, that there is forgiveness, God, for the way that we make marriage about ourselves or the way that we idolize and worship our spouse. I thank you, God, that there is forgiveness, God, for the sin of unrealistic demands and expectations that we as sinful people put on our spouses. I thank you, God, that there is forgiveness for all of that. I pray, God, that nobody would walk out condemned this morning. But, God, they would be um, encouraged and refreshed anew in the joy of their salvation. God, the salvation that washed them clean of their sins. May we be reminded of the great work of Jesus on our behalf, God. And God, may we set our minds, may we set our hearts, God, may we set our finances and our times and our families, God, on the kingdom of God. May we live now in a way, God, um, Lord, that, that leaves us wanting your return even more because we've tasted the goodness of your kingdom here on earth. And we want your kingdom fully recognized in this earth and in our lives. pray, God, that you would use us to stir one another up in faith and good works.
pray, God, that you would give us the strength to confess our sins and repent. I thank you, God, that you are faithful and just to forgive. And I pray, Lord, uh, for those that might be in here this morning, God, in, the, in their marriages, um, Lord, they, they already know. You're already speaking to them and telling them what it is that they need to say to their spouse today. I pray, God, that you would give them the courage uh, to say that and not just wait for that feeling to go away. For those spouses in here, God, that need to confess and ask for forgiveness, I pray, God, that you would give them the courage knowing that you know all Nothing is hidden from you, and yet you've forgiven all. So we can confess one to another. And for those here this morning, God, who need to forgive their spouses, I pray that you would give them the strength to, in faith, forgive their spouses for the things they've done wrong. I pray, God, that you would give them the strength to forgive unrealistic expectations and demands. Pray, God, that you would remind them of your great forgiveness and love for them. And that because they have been forgiven, that they too would forgive.